the reason that I think of it as the single worst addiction is because unlike every other drug that's out there, um, the high that this one gives you and the recognition of how you can get it um, and, what, and, and how you have to push yourself to keep going, to get more, mm. there's, it's limitless. I wonder what you mean when you use the word I. Hey everyone, I'm your host Mitch Wallace and I'm excited to be sharing another story with you today. Today's guest is Liz Swigert. She is an amazing human. She's a partner, um, which for those that don't know is a term for an executive, a senior executive at PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, based in Texas. Uh, she has had an incredible career, uh, very successful but yet she opens up today about her experience with anxiety, depression, OCD, and a whole range of other stuff. And I think for me, the biggest takeout and the insight that was most profound was her explanation of how external validation is really the strongest drug known to man and that we're permanently chasing that high from childhood all the way through to adulthood, but it's cost is that we often don't know who we really are because we just run after whatever gets us the strongest level of recognition from other people because ultimately we want to feel loved more than anything else. And Liz very eloquently talks about her story and her journey with that. I actually noticed and got in touch with Liz through a LinkedIn post uh, where she vulnerably shared her um, a, a picture of her pretty much packing up her things and leaving the office of this high-flying job uh, due to mental health issues. And very rarely do you see someone in her position of her seniority be wearing her heart on her sleeve in such a public way. So we reached out to her and we're, and we're lucky enough to be doing this episode with her. And um, I think you guys will take a lot out of it. There are uh, mild uh, to moderate trigger warnings around suicidal ideation. We also explore the nature of obsessive compulsive disorder um, in a little bit of detail. So if these things are triggering for you, uh, please go slow through the episode, potentially listen to it or watch it with uh, a trusted friend or family member. Um, or maybe put it on the shelf until you're in a, in, in a comfortable headspace. There's also a mild reference to um, weight and body image. So please be conscious of that too. As always, go slow, go strong, one day at a time. We're all on the journey. Introducing Liz. All the way from Texas streaming to you live in australia and you love australia right i do i do 
Um, unfortunately, right now, Australia doesn't like me or, well, it doesn't like anybody coming in from out, from outside. So I have uh, no opportunities to, uh, to visit again for at least a little while, but the day will come. Yeah. I will have a proper, I will have a proper coffee once again. And uh, I can't wait to, um, to meet you in person when that happens. I always thought it was weird that even pre-COVID, I'd be flying back from another country and our quarantine was like we were going to Mars for the first time because they got you to check whether there was um, dirt on your shoes from another country. Mm-hmm. Like to declare if like you brung, you, you brung, I don't know if that's a word. It is now. If you, if you bought a, um, a gold coin in from like Africa and we need to declare that it's crazy. So I can only imagine people trying to get into like live as human beings right now. Uh, yes. And I've, I've had some, I've had some really remarkable experiences with the, um, with the transportation safety administration equivalent in Oz. Um, I, uh, I guess it was probably 2015. Uh, my younger daughter had was, was not even a year old and I was on a business trip and I had one of those gigantic Yeti coolers, like the little, like I had the tote bag one. Yeah. And, um, so I, you know, just rock up to Sydney airport with my giant um tote and um the the uh security guy goes uh, and this is me exiting at this point because you have frozen food in there and i'm like actually no it's empty i'm gonna fill it with breast milk and bring it home to my kid (laughs) um because i'm transparent and god bless the guy he just goes good on you high five um which is totally not the experience you'd have in the united states and so i just uh, i really celebrate everything about about australia yeah well um it's it's definitely a different country and we uh we are much more direct than most uh which is good for someone like you who obviously is you wear your heart on your sleeve hence why we're here and um and i'm really grateful that we're going to be walking through some of that today so um can you paint a picture about um, where, where Liz came from in the early stages of life. And we'll walk through that journey somewhat chronologically. Absolutely. Um, so let's see, I started off in New York city in Manhattan on the upper West side. Um, my dad is from the Bronx and my mother is from Brooklyn. So I'm quite multicultural. Proper New Yorker. I love that. Very much so. And (laughs) I, um, so what's funny is that growing up in New York, it's a remarkably provincial place. I uh, spent my whole growing up about half a mile from the place that I was born, uh, which is interestingly enough, as I've gone through life, I found out that most people don't have that experience. I was a small town girl in a city of millions of people. Mm. I've never heard it described like that. And um, I've spent a lot of time in New York. I went to university there at Columbia and um, I, it's such, I love the way you put that because a lot of New Yorkers spend a lot of their life in a five borough radius at most, Mm -hmm. but ironically get to see and experience more cultures and more of the world than almost anyone in the world. (laughs) That is such a unique way to think about it. It is. And I think the way you described that is perfect. Uh, if 
fans of uh, Star Trek The Next Generation will remember the holodeck, uh, this idea that there is this space that can encapsulate anywhere that you can imagine. Mm. And that's very much what New York is. It's, it's a place where you step into it. And depending on where it is that you, that you step in, you're transported almost anywhere in the world. And that's, it's remarkable for that. Mm. So growing up there, and I grew up uh, half a mile south of Columbia. So uh, you were at, when you were at Columbia, you were probably facing um, St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital, mm -hmm. uh, which is where I was born. Oh, uh, wow. And you probably at some point ate pizza at the VNT, yep. uh, which is my favorite pizzeria on earth and the place that we went every week when I was growing up. So it's, uh, it's a remarkable place. And I uh, was incredibly privileged. I went to a K through 12 all girls school. There were uh, 30 women in my graduating class. So pretty small. Mm. And uh, when I compare that to so many people that I've met, especially over here in the States where we have high schools that will have 3000 people in a graduating class, uh, it was, it was quite a small universe that I lived in. And what were you like in those, in those times? Like, how would you describe your disposition? I was a goody two shoes. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, yes, I, um, you know, I, I loved, I loved school because I loved learning, mm. but I never fit. I, I mean, and I think you'll find this as a, this is a theme. Uh, I describe myself now as a purple sparkly unicorn. Uh, we're rarely seen in the wild. And when, when we find another one of our kind, it is a miracle. Mm. I have, I've just, I've always been very much of a square peg trying to force into a round hole. And it's, it's taken me a really long time to, uh, to figure out that I not only don't need to do that, but I don't want to do that. Say so, more about that. Uh, I'm interested in that because I have felt that many times, but I want to know in which domains do you feel that? And if, and if um, anything just comes to mind straight away, your gut around examples where you've felt like a square peg in a round hole in your life, just little examples. Ooh, well, it, my life abounds with them. So let's, let's stick on with, with girls school. So I, I, you know, I'm going to graduate. I've been, I've been with the same group of women pretty much for 13 years, right. From the time we're five and a half until we're 18 and a half. And, um, my life is essentially prescribed for me. We're all mm -hmm. going to go to Ivy league schools. Uh, we're not going to leave the Northeast. Some of us may not even leave the Island of Manhattan. Uh, we, are we are going to marry somebody named Skip. We're going to have children named Trip, Buffy and Binky. We're going to drive Hunter Green Volvo station wagons. We're going to take our children to and from field hockey practice with, of course, our Jack Russell Terrier named Roosevelt in the background. So that's, that's the life that had been laid out for me. And that's not who I am. Mm. And so I, uh, I like to sit, think that I, I borrowed I, I borrowed my inspiration from uh, Davy Crockett, who uh, announced to the Tennessee legislature that you may all go to hell and I will go to Texas. And so that's what I did. I decided that I wasn't going to go to the university that had been picked out for me. I was going to go to a school called Rice. And uh, Rice University is one of the best unis in the States. And it's also one that no one from my school went to because it was so anathema. 
And so I picked up and I, I moved almost 2000 miles away from home and I created a new life for myself in a place uh, where I didn't know how to drive and you really need a car. So it was, um, if, if you want me in a, if you want me in a, a microcosm, that's it. It is the recognition that I am not in a place that I can thrive. I will go and find that place. And the thing about me in college was that I was so, I would say beaten down through my, through, especially through my high school years, um, being really just different, always knowing that I was different. I wasn't like everybody else that I was with. I didn't, I didn't feel about the world the way that they did. I didn't express myself the way that they did. I didn't solve problems the way that they did. And so when I got to college, uh, I had been, I had been Elizabeth uh, for my, my whole life. And my, my mother, I think is still extremely unhappy that I have nicknames now. I, uh, I got to college and I decided that I was going to become Lizzie and Lizzie was going to be popular. Lizzie mm. was going to get elected and she did class president. Lizzie was going to, Lizzie was going to have more friends on campus than anyone. She was going to be the person that I, I never thought I could be before. Um, and I, I invented this character and I lived this character for a really long time. And as I think about it, when, when my, when I first started this elaborate dance, um, that exists between my mind and my brain, um, I was about 16 years old and like every 16 year old New Yorker, of course I had a therapist and my, my therapist said to my parents that, um, she thought that I, I was probably, I probably had depression, but was not able to clinically diagnose me. Um, I, I think at the time there were rules about how old you had to be to get a diagnosis. And so it wasn't until college that I was, I was first diagnosed with major depressive disorder. And looking back now and putting all the pieces together, I, I see why it was that I was so eager to create this character and then to play her. Because one, it meant that I could be who I thought everybody wanted, not who they necessarily wanted me to be, but the person that they wanted who would be liked, who would be, who, who would be affirmed, who would be validated. That was, mm -hmm. that was so important to me. Mm. And yes, so Lizzie, Lizzie had an incredible experience at uni. I, there, was, there was nothing I didn't do. Uh, and and I, mean that, I mean that in a positive way. Mm -hmm. um, I, studied, I studied everything I could get my hands on from history to chemical engineering to Gothic architecture. I was the photo editor of the school paper. I uh, was a DJ uh, for a radio station. I, uh, I I played women's gridiron, so I I did it all, and that was also the beginning of my experience um, recognizing that I could hide what was going on under the surface by projecting relentless positivity mm. and energy. And that's then how I would go on to spend the next 20 years of my life. And I want to hear about this next chapter, but it's a great time to pause and just consolidate what you shared so far. An amazing um, context. And I think we've got a good snapshot of who we're seeing travel into her adult years. 
um, when I think that the majority of the ill health stuff started to emerge. Um, you mentioned that the depression was uh, kind of an undercurrent in the late teens and into your early 20s, um, but it sounds like that grew and morphed. But before we get to that, I find it super interesting when we as humans take opportunities to do a rebrand, which is essentially what Elizabeth to Lizzie was, right? And, um, and, it's, and it's around that time, I think, all the way up until 25, I think we do it all of our life, but I think the highest, um, most concentrated time of rebranding, also known as trying to find out who the fuck we are, comes, uh, for me, it was 25 and it led up until 25. And 25 was the culmination point in which the question that would uh, rot away in the back of my brain of who are you, who are you, who are you, became so hard to mute. And I think we just like throw shit at the wall and we try on a few veils and we see what it's like. Like, oh, this one fits pretty good. Okay, I'm getting some validation here, some recognition here. Oh, that dopamine feels great. Okay, I'm going to steal a bit of that. And then you kind of um, paint this mosaic of personality types that all kind of oscillate around... um, a a DNA of who you have been for however many decades, but you're trying to figure out where you're going to double down. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So what was, what was one of those parts that felt the best? Was it the popularity? Was it the spontaneity? Was it the intelligence? Oh gosh, it was all of it. It was a drug. It It was a drug. Affirmation is the greatest high external validation like that is it really is. unfortunately it, great greatest ego high oh my gosh because and and the reason that i think of it as the single worst addiction is because unlike every other drug that's out there um the high that this one gives you and the recognition of how you can get it um, and what, and, and how you have to push yourself to keep going, to get more mm. there's it's limitless, right? There's no, the thing about affirmation is that because there is, there really is until you get to the very end of the line. And, and I will talk about that later. Um, there isn't, there isn't a rock bottom. Mm. It's really hard to hit bottom when your, uh, drug of choice is external validation and affirmation. And there is never enough. There's a big dealer with a lot of shit to dish out. And the thing is, like, you get your first hit when you're a kid. Mm. Like, seriously, you always get them when they're young. And that's what does it. It, And it's from the first moment that you start to realize, I I can be a people pleaser, right? I can make other people happy with me. And all I have to do is this. And they'll, they'll fill in for me what I can't do for myself. And what I can't do for myself is tell myself, actually, this persona does not make your ass look big. And um, it's, it's authentically you. And so that's, I mean, to me, being able to kick that habit, that, um, that's freedom. Yeah. And I think that takes, it takes a while. And, and in my experience, it takes a lot of shedding layers often painfully and 
because really, uh, and I've uh, knowing that you are studying a PhD in psychology, have brought my DSM along with me. Um, <laughs> there's so many ways that I think about. I mean, I spend most of my waking hours thinking about the mind um, and the brain, and I love that you distinguish between the two because there's absolutely a difference. Uh, but one of the analogies or metaphors or concepts that I try and comprehend it with is this idea of um, it's spirit in raw form and spirit is so pure and susceptible and vulnerable that as a human, we've, we have to build protective layers around it of which Freud called the ego, um, mm-hmm. which is essentially a human personality to shield what is at its core, a transcendent source of energy um the thicker these layers become the more quote-unquote protected safe certain and in control it feels but also the layers cost is um rigidity inhibition um and the inability to feel truth i guess (laughs) and um because that's what it's guarding against Mm -hmm. so to kind of come back to our idea at the moment that we're playing around with, which is this identity thing is that the, why it is so hard to actually shake this addiction to validation is because there are so many layers that have been built just like moss builds on the bottom of a, of a boat um, that re- that removing those layers, those protective layers and ego, one of which is a, um, a bias towards validation. Every time we get validated and every time we rely on something external telling us we're enough, another layer builds mm-hmm. because it's not our core truth. It's not our core essence. It's not being, it is, um, it is just trying to defend against the pain of we're not enough. Therefore, the scrubbing away of the moss on that boat, also known as the shedding layers, which is essentially what therapy is, is trying to remove as much ego and bullshit that we've built up throughout our life to get back to our core truth of who we are, fucking hurts. (laughs) Amen. Uh, Yes. And literally, I just spent the last year doing that. And as you you noted, really, just that's a beautiful visual. that's that's exactly what it is. The one thing I would say in my case that was a little different, you talked about being able to get back to a core of truth of who you are, right? Your your most exposed id, if you will. Yep. What if you don't know what that is? And that was where I was. I was in a place where I was shedding layers and I was not finding anything underneath. Interesting. Because I had I had ceded my identity to um, pretty much my career, my job. Like that was because that was my, that was my biggest fix, right? That was, that was my biggest source of affirmation and validation and legitimacy, right? You have, you have this, you have attained the height of your profession and you have the label that goes with that. You are valid. And Mm. guess what? It ain't true. However, 
that doesn't mean that one can't convince oneself that it's true. But as you said, when you strip all of that away and you're left with who am I, that interestingly enough, it, it wasn't, it wasn't when I, when I was suicidal, that wasn't my, my lowest. And I didn't know it at the time. I thought that's as low as I could possibly get. No, the lowest point was realizing that I had no idea who I was and that I would not only have to get down to that, but then I would have to sit with that and I would have to start building up that nucleus, if you will. Mm. And the good news for me is that it was always there, but I couldn't see it. I, I describe it to people um, as, as people who, you know, so sometimes people will say to me, I have no choices. I have no choice. I, I have to. And what I, what I ask them is, have you, have you thought that maybe you're standing in a room and there are three doors along one wall, but you're standing with your back to the doors and all you see is a blank wall in front of you. You haven't bothered to turn around. So yes, there are choices. You can't see them. Mm-hmm. And for me, who I was, was lurking behind me on the other wall, but I was so resolute and intent that I was going to look at this damn wall that I, I lost the ability to, uh, to look around. And that's, as you said, that this is what, what does therapy do? Therapy gives you an opportunity uh, to have someone help you look in a mirror and not tell you what's in the mirror. They don't, your therapist doesn't, your therapist is good. They don't tell you what is in the mirror. They don't tell you what to see. They help you to look, they help you to look more deeply. And it's that reflection, literally reflection. Uh, that you spend time with scrutinizing, thinking about. And that's where you do the work of shedding those layers and getting to your core. And in some cases, as for me, developing developing a new core. Mm. The rebuild. Yes, like a like like a like a really cool old Chevy, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh. Um, I really relate to that process and I want to color in a bit more around this because we understand that there's a depression. We understand that there's a lack of identity, but, um, am I correct in, in asking if OCD was present for you as well? Oh, yes. And And can you talk me through what that is? OCD. So I like so many other people have grown up with images in the media of what obsessive compulsive disorder looks like. I am not monk. Therefore I must not have OCD. I, um, I went my whole adult life, um, not realizing that so much of what I did, so much of, of my actions, my behaviors, so much of my energy went to managing OCD. I was only diagnosed formally in the last year. Mm. And looking back, I don't know if you have seen it. I assume you have. Uh, There was a Keanu Reeves movie called The Matrix. And at the very end, he he receives essentially this like second sight and he can see the matrix in front of him unfolding. And 
it turns into all of these, these numbers, right? The binary just sort of falls down in front of him and he's able to see all of the little pieces come together to form the whole. And that's what happened to me over the last year. I was able to look into my matrix of my life and all of a sudden, all of the pieces were there. Everything fell into place and started to make sense. And I saw what was behind everything. Hmm. So my experience with OCD the best way for me to describe it is that I have, I develop these intrusive thoughts. So for example, uh, and, and this is, this is the easiest, the easiest thing for, for me to, to sort of provide a visual for, for people to kind of perceive. I have always struggled with my self-image and um, particularly when it comes to my body and my weight. And so I would get these intrusive thoughts that um, I I was going to I was going to gain weight I was going to uh, be be desperately unattractive and miserable and again because I must have other people love me that is a problem and so I would get these thoughts that um, this is going to happen if if you don't do something. Now, of course, my jerk brain doesn't tell me what something is. It just feeds me all of these thoughts and these thoughts become an obsession Mm. and it's all I can think about. And in order to make it go away, because it creates this anxiety for me, I become so anxious because I cannot stop thinking about, well, what am I eating? Everything that I scrutinizing, everything that I eat, scrutinizing every, literally every step that I take. It, it is so overwhelming that the only way that I can make it stop, the only way I can make it go away is by doing some sort of action. And because I got so good at pushing it down, right? And just kind of jamming the lid on top, when the bin finally burst, I had to act immediately. And so impulse, incredibly impulsive behavior and behavior that made no sense to anyone. Um, I remember in in uni going running at three o'clock in the morning, pop out of bed, go run, go run 5k because I had to do, I had to, I had to. And that was the only way that I could get that release of the anxiety. And over time, I kept finding more and more outlets for it. And I tried to figure out a way to make my compulsive outlets a hobby. Um, because that's less freaky to people. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, compulsive behavior does not, it, it doesn't do well as a hobby. So I found that I would, I would do things that were so impulsive and people would be surprised because in all other aspects of my life, as they perceived me, I was so put together. Hmm. Like I was the person like, that they wanted to be. And I'm sitting here thinking, you have no idea how fucked up I am and you do not want to be me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want you to think that you want to be me because then you will love me. And oh my gosh, this vicious cycle. So my OCD manifested itself this way. And over this past year, uh, as I've been in intense therapy, what I have come to understand is how the thoughts start. And that if I tried, because my first answer to this, because I'm a problem solver is to say, all right, well, what I'm going to do then is I am just going to find a way to stop the behaviors when they pop out. Like that's what I'm going to do. 
that's like, that's trying to catch the horse, like as it's headed out of the barn, right? Like the odds are not in your favor. So to address it, I really have to back it all the way up, up to the beginning. And the beginning is when the thoughts occur. And so for me, practicing mindfulness and, and learning how to listen to and sit with my emotions, recognize my feelings, recognize the thoughts as they're starting. And in that way, say, be able have that self-awareness in the moment to be able to say, I recognize this as the kernel of an obsession. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have a choice. I have agency. I am not beholden to this. I know that I know what I can do to dial this back. Now, I'm not cured. I don't believe any of us ever are, but I have tools now and I have an awareness that I never had. And so my ability to manage the thoughts that become obsessions before they do, and instead of trying to like, you know, shove them in a bin or like in like the way we all used to clean our room as kids, you know, you're like shove it under the bed or shove it in the closet. And then like your parent comes in you're like leaning against the door, like don't let it (laughs) pop open. So instead of, I mean, that's how I used to clean up my brain, right? It's like, I'm just going to shove everything in the closet or under the bed. And then I'll just lean on it. If anybody comes and they won't like, as long as they don't try to open the door or I don't move, like they won't see everything, like all the shit, like fall out. Mm -hmm. And so instead of trying to treat it that way, I've recognized that I can actually go to the, I can actually ask myself, where is this thought coming from? Why, why is this, why is this trying to insinuate itself into my mind? And I can, I can interrogate it, Uh, not necessarily like flashlight in the face, but I can, I can ask myself and I can work through where is this coming from and how do I, how do I resolve it before this becomes an obsession? And it's not perfect. It will never be. But I like to think of it as I I replaced a filter that was kind of like Swiss cheese uh, with one that's really fine mesh. Mm -hmm. And so I have I have learned new ways of managing my OCD. But that's that's how it manifests for me. And that's kind of been my experience and learning to live with it. Yeah. I can tell how much work you've done um on yourself because of just the way you talk about it. Um the ability to communicate how we feel in a coherent and honest way is a very large indicator um, or outward manifestation of our internal emotional world. Um, There's a lot of research around that in attachment psychology where um, someone's discourse is actually a reflection of how they cope in relationship and in relationship to self. And I can tell you're someone who is control orientated uh, and that the lack of control would stimulate the need for something to occur to take away the angst that the lack of control brought. Um, Many thoughts and reflections. One, just as someone who has a degree in it, I'm really happy that your psychologist didn't diagnose you with an eating disorder because a lot of those symptoms could have, someone who is lazy could have just gone, oh yeah, eating disorder. Um, but it's actually not about the food and it's not about the weight. They were just signposts to something bigger. Um, and as you kind of referred to, it was the nagging um, white noise of something's not okay and I need to shift it 
and I don't know how to shift it. So I'm just going to shift something in the outside world. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I think what, what, what many people respond to me with when I tell my story of OCD, which is similar, you know, mine was to the point of being a patient in a, um, facility and many things in between mine started at seven years old of acute observable behaviors that my mum would have to stop me in a shopping center and be like what the fuck are you doing um but a lot of people say well how did you then go on and build a career at microsoft and get on stage and public speak and all that stuff and i say the the kernel to use your word of control that existed in my mind was far beyond the veneer of just like a little bit of social anxiety or breaking up with a partner or like speaking on stage. This was like something isn't okay in the world and who I am at a deep core level. How did you negotiate with your own brain the level of neuroses that was occurring and how well you were achieving in the outside world. How did like getting up at 3 a.m. disturbs your study? And I would imagine being a partner at PwC for the last however long, there's been a lot of requirements for you to be quote unquote normal and put together. How did you fake that? A lot of energy. I, I faked it with energy and I faked it with relentless positivity, uh, which is like water, actually. So I, I like I, positivity is a good thing. But I think of it like water. If you have too much, it is toxic and it will kill you. Mm. And that's what happened for me was that, as you said, I, I had to keep it all together, all of the plates spinning and all that was happening was more plates were getting at it. And I, I did it by, um, one, absolutely sacrificing sleep, which, um, I think we both know is something that can be quite the physical trigger. Um, for your mind to, to go haywire, uh, for your brain to go haywire anyhow. And I, I did it by presenting, just dedicating myself to my character and, (laughs) and acting and pretending and doing everything I could to keep up this facade that everything was okay. And funnily enough, I don't actually think it was for anybody else. Mm. I think it was for me. I think I was more afraid of, of having to look in that mirror and see all of the cracks than I was of anybody else seeing it. Because if I had to admit that it was true, um, I mean, that was the end of the line. So as you said, um, I, I didn't have some, you know, there, there wasn't some sort of magic, you know, answer. There was simply that I felt that I had no choice but to push on and, and be this person. And that's, that's where all of my energy went. It went to projecting this, this high energy, highly engaged, super smart, all over it, being everywhere, doing everything, knowing everyone. And then the well ran dry. Mm. And when, when that happened, uh, for me, what happened was that I entered a major depressive episode at the end of, well, I'm going to use months because obviously our winter and summer are flipped, uh, at the, uh, at the end of, uh, August, beginning of September, 2018 is when the, the major depressive episode 
began for me, this, this one, this last one. And I'd had them over the course of my life. Like I, I knew what the sensation was. So I went to my psychiatrist and I got medication. I got my Prozac because I know that that, I know that it works. Um, and frankly, I've only been on medication a handful of times in my adult life. I've mostly been able to manage my, my depression, or at least I thought I could and my OCD, which I didn't know that I had. Um, I've been able to manage it, whether it was lifestyle choices, whether it was, uh, therapy, whatever it was, I was able to deal. Mm -hmm. And then, um, at this point I was so things, things were so popping in my career that I couldn't slow down at all. So I had to just see whichever psychiatrist was available, which meant that I went to a clinic practice and I never saw the same person twice. Mm. And it wasn't their fault that they had no holistic picture of me. And I kind of was benefiting from that fact. And so every three to four months I would backslide and I would go back and I'd essentially get another hit. When I maxed out on Prozac, they put me on Wellbutrin. When I maxed out on Wellbutrin, they put me on Topamax. Uh, to pyramid, which is uh, great if you have epilepsy and you need to control seizures. Um, it can be used as a mood stabilizer, but by the time I got up to the highest dose that they will give you for non-epilepsy treatment, I had developed tremors that made somebody that I work with ask me if I'd been evaluated for early onset Parkinson's. I had lost my short-term memory. Um, as you can probably tell, I, I love words. <laughs> I, and I love to talk and I lost all my words. I, I couldn't, I couldn't put sentences together that made any kind of sense. And I, um, I got to this point in November of 2019 where I had this it's so lucid. I can even, I mean, I can see it right now. I, I literally felt my mind slip away mm. and my mind is like, when I think of the things about myself, I cherish the most. It's my mind. Mm. And um, that was when I started planning to end my life because I didn't give, I didn't give a shit about anything anymore. And it was, uh, you know, I said this to somebody the other day, they were talking about how, you know, hard for them to imagine I could be in this place. You know, I have, I have the most unbelievable, I have the most unbelievable partner. I have, I have beautiful children. I have everything. And I sort of wanted to slap him because it was like, yeah, I didn't care. I didn't feel anything. I looked at how other people were reacting. So I would know what emotion to show. I felt nothing. And so when I got to that point, I, I was just, I was done Damn. and I'm really lucky. My, um, my husband was, was where he needed to be when he needed to be there. And I found the words. And that's when I was able to uh, stabilize. I was not a danger to myself. Um, and that was the point where I said, that's, that's it. I I'm, I'm done. I, I didn't, and I didn't even have the words for I'm done playing this character. I'm done trying to be this person. I think that I'm supposed to be to make other people happy so that then I'll be happy because they're happy. And then I'll keep you know, trying to make them happy so that then I can be happy and we can continue this vicious cycle. I didn't know any of that then. I simply knew that if I went any further, it was over. In that moment, we're faced with a decision 
And if we can say I'm done with the character, not life, the magic's about to happen. Yes, very much so. And I think a lot of people get to that point and they hit the rock bottom and then they they keep falling and they're like, I thought that was rock bottom. And you keep going. <laughs> and then you're like, fucking hell, how long is this mountain just trail for? When you finally hit the inertia point and stillness occurs and you're lying on your back looking up at the sky and you're faced with that decision of giving up, I would say give up. That's what the world is trying to tell you to give up. Not on life, but on the ego and the fighting and the needing to be something that is in which if we surrender and, as Eckhart Tolle says, die before we die, the ego death, that's when we are reborn. That's when we let go of the suffering and the control and the needing to be. And it's an incredibly raw, just like anything that's lost its skin and its layers and is exposed to the environmental world, even the wind stings when it hits your skin. Um, but slowly and surely and with the right people around, we rebuild into a cocoon and into a, um, into a new type of shell that is there to carry us home. And it sounds like you've done that. That's incredibly beautiful. I love that. Thank you. Wow. What a gift that is. That's, I love that. That's beautiful. And I completely agree. The, um, the caterpillar had to form a new chrysalis mm. and, um, as you're probably well aware, turn into a giant pile of goo. <laughs> um, yeah, it, usually what people, I, I, and you, I don't know if you've experienced this in your own, in your own journey and recovery. Um, People tend to gloss over the goo stage. Um, the glue, the goo stage fucking sucks. Yeah. Um, but the goo stage is necessary. And then somehow out of the goo, there is this butterfly. And as you said, on those wings, you will be carried home. Mm. And um, I, I, I like that. I, I like the idea that I've now turned into a butterfly. Um, and I also like the idea that, that it's, it's ongoing right? I haven't arrived at a destination. I have simply reached a way station on the journey. 100%. And it's, it's a mile marker that I can celebrate. And I can look up ahead. And it's those things together, because I, I think for so long, there was this notion that I had that, that I, I was broken and ergo, I was fixable. Uh, I'm not broken. So there's nothing to fix. Because you're just human. Because I'm just me. Exactly. And that, that realization that this is, you know, I am, I, I am not an old, like I'm not an old Oldsmobile that needs to, you know, have the hood popped and, you know, cleaned up. Uh, no. So in, in this case, for me, it was really exactly what you described, this recognition that I had to let go of something mm. and that what had to die wasn't me. It was, um, in a sense, this, this skin that I had to shed, right? It was this, this character that had to go the, this whole, this, this whole hologram of life had to go. And I think what was scary for me was that I really thought that the hologram was going to be as good as it gets. 
I thought the hologram was the best. Um, and then when that went away and I thought, oh, oh no, like it, it'll never be, it'll never be okay. And then I found out that reality like kicks the shit out of the hologram. <laughs> like, why didn't somebody tell me? Like, this would have been really helpful information like 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, but it does. It's just, it's like, I, for the first time, it's strange to me. There are things that I've always said out loud and never meant. And now I can say like, oh, I love being alive. I, I love living. I love my life. I love the fact that I have a life and that just, that is so much better than any construct that I tried to create over, over the course of, of my existence and getting to that point again, goose stage, unpleasant, but man, is it better on the other side? Mm. It really is. And um, I think people listening to this will resonate with it. But um, as someone who has had the the luxury of working in this mental health space for a while, I almost have this said community member's voice in my head, which is permanently, whether I'm doing a podcast or writing an e-learning or hosting a workshop, I'm trying to forecast what they're saying back, which is, yeah, but so my yeah, but voice right now is saying, but what happens if we, what happens if I break and I hit rock bottom and I'm there lying in my rawness, it's fine to say conceptually letting the ego die and stop fighting and actually just surrender to I'm not okay and blah, blah, blah. What does that actually look or what did that look like for you? How do you think you got through that moment? Are there any tactical things that you, you mentioned your husband? Mm-hmm. Um, what other talk more about what he did specifically and other things that helped? That's that's really good because I think that the practical element is is really, I mean, the brass tacks. Yep. Um, what did he do? he didn't really do anything. And that's why it was perfect. He simply sat down. He listened. He told me that he loved me and that we were going to be okay. Not that I was going to be okay, but we were going to be okay. And then because uh, he is, he's, well, it still makes sense to Americans. He's an Eagle Scout. He is, you know, sort of the top of, he reached the top rank of the, of the Boy Scouts. So he is, he is a planner and he is always very well prepared. Um, at that point, he was able to start talking to me about small steps, right? Like let's, what is this going to look like? Let's make a plan. So for me, it looked like first being able to say, I need to go to the doctor, right? I just, I need to go to the doctor and I need to figure out what is happening between my medication and everything else. What is happening that's put me in this acute moment of crisis yep. and we can do that. And I can do that with you. Okay. Check that's done. You don't have anything that you need to do tomorrow and everything you think you have to do tomorrow, you really don't need to do tomorrow. And then it was a question um, in that moment of, I, I'm very lucky to have somebody who looks after me and looks after my calendar. Mm. And I could say, I need 
I need to not have anything on my calendar tomorrow. And so what I did was I created space. So the first thing that I did was I got in touch with somebody who was professionally trained to help me in the moment in which I was. Then I was able to create space to, to address it. And the luxury that I have, the incredible privilege that I have is that I can create that space without causing havoc in my life. That is, there are a lot of people for whom that is not true. Mm-hmm. And so whatever you can do to create that initial space first to access someone who is trained and qualified to help you manage an acute situation, right? That's, that's crisis. We're talking crisis level here. It's somebody who can work with you in that moment. And it is then figuring out how you create enough space for yourself that you can, you can clear the decks, so to speak, to evaluate where you are and what you need to do next. Now, for some folks that is inpatient, right? It may be, it may be that you go to the hospital immediately. Like that may be this place that you are for other people. Maybe it's not, maybe it's a, well, I don't necessarily need inpatient, but I need to, I need to get in a space where I have rigorous outpatient for others. It's a, I need to scale back on what I'm doing now. And I need to add in more therapy. I need to add in or therapy to begin with. I what do I, what do I need to do to create the space that I need to work on getting better and realize that your first choice may not be the right one. In fact, your second and your third may not even be the right ones. This is highly iterative and it's not prescriptive. So there's, to my mind, it's really, it's two things. It's one, you need to find somebody who can help you where you are, meet you in that right place and has the training to do that. And second, create the space so that you can help to, you can be a partner in your own care and you can figure out how much room do I need and to push the stuff that I've got going on. What do I need to push off so that I can do the work that I need to do now? And for me, that was the starting point. And it's really basic. It's sort of really simple, but that was the tangible stuff that I needed immediately. And mm-hmm. again, I'm really fortunate. I got it. Yeah, I'm glad that you did too. Um, and uh, w- what's important there is that you addressed, you broke things down into tiny parts because anything beyond probably 24 hours when you're in that headspace isn't palatable. And you're not trying to solve for forever when you're when you're that distressed you're just trying to solve for now you're trying to bring back down into a normal coping range so that from there we can build the longer term plan of how do I get my day-to-day life better um the uh what's just a thought that's come to me now is in a completely non-statistically valid way just an observation that I have from talking to literally hundreds, probably tens of thousands of people now um, and going through it myself and studying it, that whenever anyone has considered taking their own life, I would say eight times out of 10 that I've heard, it's because they are either transitioning 
restabilize, have some type of medication issue. So there is a chemistry component to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and or there is a substance abuse in the moment, super high or drunk or whatever. Either way, there is a chemistry component to it, whether it's medication or substances related. How many people have we lost just because the the wire is connected to the wrong side of the battery? And that doesn't mean the car's broken. But it fucking feels like it because the thing won't start. And the driver can only take so long being frustrated with the car before they're like, fuck it, um, the car's the car's out. Um, so I think it's just so vitally important that sometimes we need to realize there is this is not a driver issue. There is a spark plug out right now. And it sucks, but the spark plug is changeable. And whenever, if you're on a cocktail of drugs, any drug, any drug that is psychoactively altering your brain, if it is not perfectly dosed, you will feel it. Like, (laughs) unless it is working, it's really fucking not working. Often it's either this is good or it's really fucking bad. So if you're in that headspace, just stop and breathe because your chemistry is telling you a story that's not true. That's, that's it. And I think you, I think you absolutely nailed that because, and this is something I'm actually asked about quite frequently because I, I was on a lot of medication. Then I came off all of it. Mm -hmm. And then three weeks after I was off everything, I started to realize that um, I wasn't feeling right and I needed to go back on medication. But like Mm. you said, it's getting the right thing in the right dose and matching that with what you're doing from a therapeutic standpoint and everything else that's part of the holistic care that you're taking of yourself. Mm. And so I felt I had a really hard time when I went back on medication, not with medication, but with me, I failed and I double failed because I had to up the dosage. I am, I am such a loser. I'm, Mm. oh my gosh, I am so broken. No, I'm not. Mm. No. I'm using the tools that I have at my disposal. And as you said, when, when your brain is, is disconnected, when, when, when the wires are not synced up and then you flood it with, with chemicals, you, you are creating, you are creating a, a situation that is rife for disaster. A spark that's flammable. That's exactly it. Right. Like you've just, you have literally just created, created the perfect place where if a spark goes off, the whole thing's going up. Correct. And that's very much it. And so I've, I've had people ask me, you know, am I anti-medication? Absolutely not. I think to your point, medication is a tool and it's Mm. one of many and you call on it when it's right to call on it and you have to use it right. Yeah. Um, it's like a knife. If you try to cut the knife with the handle, something with a knife with that, when you're holding and you know, you're trying to use the handle to do the cutting, congratulations, you just sliced up your hand. Yeah. So if you don't use the tool properly, it's not going to get anything done for you. Mm. And so, yes. And I, you know, substance abuse substances, um, and, and in that I, you know, and it, we always, you know, we talk about drugs and alcohol, but there are, there are so many 
things that can alter your mind, whether, um, you know, that are behavioral, quite frankly. And it's when, when you are so deep into it that, uh, your, your brain can't cope with all of the stimuli that it is being subjected to. And it just goes, I'm out, I'm done. Right. Like, yep. Sorry. Nope. Overloaded the circuits. We're done. And that's, that's a rough place. That's a really rough place to be. It is a rough place to be. And I've definitely been there, but in some ways, and you can only say this with hindsight. In fact, it shits me when people say like, looking back on it now, I'm like, but I'm fucking in it. I don't want to look back. on." <laughs> but honestly, looking back on it now, I would say the brain is such a beautiful engineering process because when it's, when it's overloaded, just like anything that's mechanical, it has safety checks and so many systems on systems on systems that's trying to perpetuate the survival of its organism that when it's like, I am completely overwhelmed, I'm fucking out. That is what psychosis is for. Psychosis or whatever else is this beautiful designed place, which is like, hey, reality is too painful. So I'm going to get the fuck out of it because I'm officially overheated and I'm shutting down or whatever else it is. But the brain, it's not trying to hurt you. When you realize the brain and life is not trying to hurt you, it's actually trying to keep you alive. And what you see as it attacking itself or degrading itself is honestly just the way for it to prevent pain that it sees in its best evaluation is I have to give you this because it's going to be less painful than this. Mm-hmm. And it might not always get that algorithm and calculation right, but it's doing its best at any time to be like, well, to avoid that, I'm going to do that. And frequently, that's that that's brilliant because it's it's really true. I felt that there are times that like my mind is like the only adult in the room, mm. um, and it's like, all right, couldn't find a sitter, like yeah. it's going down. <laughs> We're just done, 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 shutting it down. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's very much it. And as you said, your brain has got, it's got the switch box, right? Your, your brain has the fuse box. And when you blow the fuse, like it's, as you said, it's there for a reason. Uh, you melt the surge protector. Um, yep. you, you still got a melted surge protector though. Yeah. So <laughs> it's not like you're off to the races right there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Look at me go. Um, it's instead, right. You're like, okay, hard reset point. And I think for me, as I look back over looking back, um, over, over the course of my life, I see these places where I totally burned the fuck out of the search protector. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, I can carry on. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, there's like, like it's smoking. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. no, 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 no. It told me it quit last week. Right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no. And so it's, it's uh, in those moments, right? Like, and your brain is like, will you just fucking listen? Like, yeah. come on. Please. It's like, I, yeah, really. It's like, I'm burning out over here. It's like, I've given you every signal and yet. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that to me is like the perfect definition of what the difference between the mind and the brain is brain is because the mind is like the intelligent, well, they're both intelligent, but it's the, the force, the spirit that is trying to talk to the mechanical engineering part of the brain, which is just the structure and the mind, the spirit is saying, Hey, 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 uh, you know, actually, I think in that case, it's the brain talking to the mind being like, 
the mechanics need your intelligence and your spirit to like do something different because we don't talk language and you do and like it's this whole mismatch but eventually they reconcile and become one and um that's the best feeling in the world where your mind and your brain are synergistically connected and working Mm -hmm. together as partners speaking of um I, we haven't really touched on, on a few, I got so many notes written down here that I want to ask you, but um, we're almost at time. And we usually end with what we call a fast five, which is basically a rapid fire five questions. Um, some are weird, some are normal. And you just answer what comes to mind first. And I'm going to just bolt on a couple of additional things I've got here that we're going to maybe make our fast five or fast eight, if that's okay. Done. All right. So fast five, number one, if you could leave listeners with one piece of advice you're currently using or change your world, what would it be? Don't give up your power. Love it. Double click one more sentence on that. You have choice and agency. You do not need to cede that to other people who do not have your best interests at heart. Well summarized. And I think that's the thesis of this entire talk around external validation. Um, Fast five two. If you could be any animal, what would you be and why? Bullicornis planae, the demon duck of doom. What is that? It okay. So it lived in Australia like fifteen million years ago, and it was like an omnivorous, like two and a half meter high, two hundred fifty kilo duck. Like who wouldn't Whoa. want that? I know. And it ate giant wombats. Fuckers. Wow. All right. Uh, number three, if you could write yourself a permission slip for something, uh, what would it say? So if you, if your self now could write your whatever age self a permission slip, what would it say? I would say you have permission to be authentically and entirely yourself. Amen. Uh, question four, what's something you've spent less than $50 on recently that's really improved your mental health? My medication. Great. And question five, we have a heart on my sleeve playlist. Um, and we have a, uh, basically a collection of people who come onto the podcast who say, what is a song that means a lot to you and why? And we'll add it to that playlist. The flaming lips have a song called, do you realize and there's a line in it that um, talks about you, you realize that life moves fast. It's hard to make the good things last. You realize the sun doesn't go down. It's just an illusion caused by the world spinning round. And in my recovery, the most important thing that I came to appreciate is life in paradox. Uh, and the paradox for me is that even if right now it's sunning, I know that there will be a time when it's pissing down rain. Mm. And when it's pissing down rain, I also know the sun will come out. And so this idea that I'm trapped in the darkness, the sun has gone down, it's left me. It's an illusion. Mm. The world spins around. It will get better. Beautiful. I can't wait to listen. Um, So that's our traditional fast five. And I think I had a couple more here that I've just picked up, which is, they're big topics and it's so unfair of me to put them in a fast five, but, um, bring it on. So, uh, what is your view on positivity and how do we make sure that it doesn't become toxic? So I think that if we think about positivity, um, as glitter, 
So if, um, if you put glitter all over something, it will cover everything in its path. You will never be able to get rid of it and you'll fucking choke on it. Um, accent, right? A little mm-hmm. accent. We don't cover all of our shit in glitter. So with me, my thought is that, that positivity is useful when you know that someone is in a place where they can receive it well as not judgment. My antidote to toxic positivity is hope and optimism. And what that looks like is saying um, instead, uh, oh no, oh no, Mitch, good vibes only. Bullshit. Whatever your vibes are, I'm vibing with you. Mm. Because here's the thing. If the vibes suck, I know that sometime they'll be good. It's raining. The sun will come out. Mm. Both of those things are true. I know like, oh, cheer up. It's cheer up. Everything's going to be fine. No, it fucking won't. Mm -hmm. I know this is hard. I know that you're really strong and I believe in you and I'm here with you through this. We, we will do this. I believe in you. Uh, and it's, it's really instead of, of telling somebody that it's a veil, toxic positivity is a veiled way of telling someone that their feelings make you so uncomfortable that you cannot engage with them. And that's your problem, not the other person's. Mm. So if, if somebody's feelings are too much for you, you can say, I can't do the emotional labor of this right now, but let me get you to a place where you're, you're getting support. But simply saying, I can't believe you're such a downer is unhelpful. Yeah. It's weird that we still have to say that in this day and age. <laughs> There's a lot of shit we have to say that we really shouldn't have to say, but that, that, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, it is. It is. Maybe we need a part two. Um, all right. Second last one. Uh, what, what's one thing you would want workplaces to know about mental illness so that they can be more accommodating? I would like them to know the difference between mental wellness and mental health. When we talk about mental wellness, that applies to everybody. Mental wellness is your brain, your mind's ability to be resilient and persevere through life's inevitable shitty moments. And you can do that with a variety of things. You can do it with meditation. You can do it with yoga. You can go for a jog. You can have a nice cup of tea with friends. Those are all things that will help you to become more resilient and and persevere better um, mentally. Mental health is clinical. So when we talk about mental illness, we're talking about clinical issues that need professional help and support to resolve. And Mm -hmm. that cannot be fixed by sending somebody an app so they can meditate for 10 minutes a day. Mm -hmm. Fuck you. (laughs) Um, And so what I, what I think is that most organizations are outstanding when it comes to mental wellness and in terms of wanting to do it and Mm -hmm. being able to provide resources for it, not understanding that mental wellness applies to everybody, but mental health is actually a fairly small segment. And if you try to treat mental health issues with mental wellness resources, you will fuck shit up. Mm -hmm. And so understand the difference between the two and when it is that you need to have accessible for people um, without the stigma, the professional support. Amen. 
Um, I've got nothing more to add there. And my last one is uh, why you mentioned the matrix before and I really visualized and I've been there where um, you're kind of looking at things and you're like, oh, everything makes sense. Um, why do you think that making sense of things and like, because you know the term like, I just need to process it. Mm-hmm. Technically processing is making sense of. Why do you think the brain has such an affinity to understanding things? And why do you think that provides such relief in our psyche? Okay. So this is an entire course in hermeneutics that we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. um, so knowing that this is the fast, whatever, um, and let, let me, let me do, let me, let me phrase it this way. The brain, your, your mind has a need to take what is in its environment, right? It's it, your brain has a need to take stimuli and to arrange and associate them so that the relationships are, are clear and decisions can be made. Make, we make sense of things so that we know what to do next. And going back to what you said earlier about the fact that your, you, your mind will fight for you right? Your, your brain will fight to keep you in the fight. Your brain needs to know who is good, who is bad, what is happening so that it can make decisions and choices. Mm. And it can't do that if it can't make sense of things. Mm. And so your brain wants to make sense of things so that it can make the choices that it needs to, to keep you alive. And so that's why I think it is so deeply satisfying to be able to make sense of things because it allows you then to make choices that are in the interest of your self-preservation. Agree. I, I do think coherence and understanding or, or the ability to make sense of things is like one of the superpower coping tools that I'm writing about in my book around. Uh, I think that there are seven domains to coping. I believe coping is the outcome of good mental health, but that's a like 50,000 podcast. Um, But in a nutshell, I think connection, coherence, and chemistry are the top three coping tools known to man. And and part of that is the ability to bring your left and right brain together, your language brain and your your, um, feeling brain. And essentially to me, making sense is where language and feeling brain comes together and creates ease. Um, because you become uh, cognizant and at peace with what a feeling means to your logical side. And therefore, it can implement and predict and monitor its sense of safety in the world more effectively. I like that. All right. Um, so many topics covered. Uh, Lizzie. Yes, and- <laughs> and, and may okay. I say thank you for not thank you for not asking me the one question that I would I would be embarrassed to answer, which is, how did I manage to raise a pair of Richmond supporters? <laughs> do, do we have AFL fans on our hands? Oh, absolutely! No way! Uh, it, it's it, yes, it embarrassingly so. Oh wow! I love um, that. Hey, this well, th- there was great disappointment this year. Yeah. Um, n- not because of the outcome clearly, uh, but because, uh, they have, they have gotten in the habit of, uh, burger rings for breakfast when the team wins. Oh, wow. I love it. Texans are pretty much Australians. Um, uh, Queensland, Queensland and Texas, there is not a lot of difference. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, San Antonio and Brisbane. Uh, uh, yeah, there's, yeah, there's a lot of, 
Uh, granted, San Antonio is about two and a half hours from me, but very, very similar. Very similar. Well, yes, um, yeah. Bris Vegas is San Antonio minus the Alamo. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of similarities between you and I, and and I think I can call you my friend now, and and I look forward to to keeping connected and um, staying in touch and watching your journey grow and thrive. So, Liz, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. The pleasure is mine. And uh, Brenda, I look, I look forward to being able to catch up in person over a proper coffee in the hopefully not too distant future. And I wish you, I wish you wellness. Me too. Thanks, Liz.